Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemoration, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the study group. It has been made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group for minority histories is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. I'm Elena Palko, a co-convener of the study group, and today I will be talking to Professor David Smith at the University of Glasgow about the minority aspect in the history and politics of the Baltic states. David, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in Central and Eastern Europe? Well, hello, Elena, and thank you very much for the opportunity to participate. About myself, well, I've lived and worked in Scotland for nearly 20 years now, but I grew up in the north of England. I have no ancestral connections with Central and Eastern Europe, at least not that I'm aware of. But looking back, um, the interest was there already from quite an early age. So my father traveled a lot for his work, including in the region. And in 1975, when I was seven years old, uh, he took the whole family with him on holiday to uh, Bulgaria. It was quite a change from the Yorkshire coast, and uh, it certainly made an impression upon me. And then later on at school, I was fortunate enough to study modern European history from 1789 to 1914 as part of the curriculum. And that led me to an interest in you know, what was called the national question in Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans. I went on to do my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees at the University of Bradford, which at that time was a leading centre for both Russian language and uh, East European studies. And one of my Russian language lecturers, um, Richard Pollock, at that time served as the personal interpreter to Margaret Thatcher. I wasn't aware of this until I saw him pop up on the TV in between Thatcher and Gorbachev during a meeting in uh, Moscow. And as that suggests, my undergraduate studies overlapped with the start of Perestroika, with the end of the Cold War and with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that, I suppose, sealed my interest in um, the region. In 1989, I spent four months as a visiting student at the Herzen State Pedagogical Institute in what was then um, Leningrad. And the interest in the Baltic states really started from there. Uh, during the autumn of 1988, I was able to visit Tallinn, Riga and Vilnius at a time when the popular movements for the restoration of Baltic independence were already well underway. And again, that left a lasting um, impression and interest. And so later back in, in Bradford, I started to work with Professor John Hyden, who was one of the very rare British historians at the time who was actually working on the Baltic states. Under John's supervision, I wrote a master's thesis on the 
singing revolution in Estonia, the, the peaceful um, transition to independence during 1987 to 1991. And then as a PhD, I explored how the restored Estonian state regulated political tensions surrounding its large Russian-speaking minority during the early 1990s. And I published aspects of that research in a series of articles um, during the late 1990s and the 2000s, and also as part of my first monograph published in 2001, Estonia, Independence and European Integration. I worked as a lecturer at the University of Bradford from 1996 to 2002. And through my work with John Hyden, I became more and more drawn to the study of minorities in the interwar uh, Baltic states. And in, in 2002, I then moved uh, to the University of Glasgow, where I've been ever since. And with me came the Baltic Research Unit and John Hyden as a, an honorary visiting fellow. And we continued our work on that historical dimension and um, that culminated in a, uh, an AHRC project um, on the concept of non-territorial autonomy in the interwar Baltic states and minorities' experiences and practice of that. And we published that as a, as a jointly authored monograph in 2012 called uh, Ethnic Diversity and the um, Nation State. And really, you know, my, my research has continued in that vein, although more recently I've expanded it out to look at contemporary practices of non-territorial autonomy in the region. So looking beyond the Baltic states to also take in Russia, um, Hungary and the uh, neighbouring states of Hungary that contain um, Hungarian minorities and where there are variants of NTA in place. And we, we have, you know, obviously Glasgow is one of the big centres for the study of the region, and we have quite a, a sizable interest, a large number of, of staff and PhD students who are working on issues of, of um, statehood and nationality of minorities, but also specifically on the Baltic states. Thank you. Um, for the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us a bit more about this region located on the eastern coast of the Baltic Sea? We often use the collective term the Baltic states to refer to Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. What had made this region seemingly, seemingly so uniform in popular geographic imagination, particularly, particularly among Westerners? And what sets it apart from the rest of East Central Europe? Well, this collective term Baltic states for me is primarily an externally imposed geopolitical label and it obscures rather significant differences between the individual countries involved. So in terms of titular language and culture, for instance, Estonia is far more closely related to Finland than it would be to its southern neighbours. Estonia and Latvia share a common legacy of Baltic German rule spanning almost seven centuries prior to 1917, while Lithuania um, can look back on an experience of statehood during the, middle, during the Middle Ages, but also to links with Poland. And that, of course, um, has led to Roman Catholicism as the majority religion, in contrast to Estonia and Latvia, where it is um, Lutheran Protestantism. And I think what unites the three states above all 
is the commonality of fate that they, they've experienced during the modern era. All three countries won their independence from Russia during 1918 to 1920, and they had two decades of sovereign statehood before being militarily occupied and forcibly annexed by the Soviet Union in the summer of 1940. Later on, of course, Estonian, Latvian and Lithuanian national movements worked together to restore independent statehood in the late 1980s with the, the, the two million strong Baltic chain stretching from Tallinn to Vilnius being a particularly visible um, symbol of that one. I can still remember uh, vividly watching on the BBC News you know, as the, as the headline item in August 1989, the 50th anniversary, of course, of the Molotov-Ribbentrop um, Pact. And that Baltic solidarity has persisted during the new era of independence and into uh, the period of EU and NATO membership, which all three states attained um, in 2004. However, if we look at the um, half century after 1940, the commonality of fate I mentioned is not a particularly happy one. And for this reason, the Baltic label is not one that is embraced wholeheartedly, I would say, in, in any of the three um, countries. And Finland, of course, um, became an independent state at around the same time. And it's interesting looking back that in 1919, uh, the, the Western geopolitical imagination would sometimes frame Finland as the fourth Baltic state, again, drawing on the, you know, the commonality, the simultaneous timing of its emergence. Over the decades that followed, though, Finland was able to cement its long-standing historic ties with Scandinavia and you know, has since become internationally recognised as a member of the Nordic um, grouping. And similarly, uh, leaders and indeed wider publics in today's Baltic states, and particularly Estonia, I'd say, have been keen to assert their historic ties to the Nordic grouping and also to the wider Baltic Sea region to the West. And in this respect, they would label themselves as Northern rather than Eastern European. And I think it's this, imagine belonging to a wider Baltic Sea region to a new Northern Europe, as it's sometimes been called after the Cold War, that um, sets the Baltic states apart from other countries in the region that are still, you know, typically labelled as Central and East European. Turning to history now, uh, by the end of the 18th century, this area had become an integral part of the Russian Empire. However, recent scholarly debates tend to problematize the consistency of the Russification policies implemented by the imperial autocracy, consciously distinguishing between acculturation, assimilation and integration, albeit depending on the specific case study under discussion. What is your position on this debate? Can we speak of an international, of an intentional, sorry, an enforced Russification of the Baltic region? And if yes, how successful was it in reality? Well, it can certainly point to policies of both cultural and administrative um, Russification, but as, as you said, they were, they were introduced at different times and to different degrees in the Baltic lands during the last six decades of Tsarist autocracy. And I have to say they, they largely failed in their aims. 
if we look at the cultural realm, uh, we see policies such as the 40-year ban on Lithuanian language publications in the Latin script that was introduced following the Polish uprising of 1863. Later on, uh, during the last two decades of the uh, 19th century, we see a switch from German to Russian medium education in the Baltic provinces of Estland, Livland and Courland. And behind these policies lay an expectation that in the longer term, the majority peasant populations of the region would inexorably in assimilate into what was putatively a more developed, a more advanced um, culture. However, if full assimilation was indeed the goal of the imperial authorities, then these policies that were introduced could by that time not stem the rising tide of Estonian, Latvian and Lithuanian national consciousness. By the mid-19th century, you already had developed national movements that were aided by the uh, end of serfdom, by uh, rates of literacy that were, by you know, the standards of the empire, very high, and also by other aspects of socio-economic uh, modernization and that the movements in question, the intellectual-led movements, had already started to reject cultural Germanization and Polonization, which up until then had been the norm for anyone wishing to advance themselves socially. And so we saw, you know, see the development of separate public spheres encompassing emerging Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian um, nations. And from this, uh, claims for greater self-determination soon started to flow. And so educated Balts learned Russian um, as, a, as a way of enhancing their, their social mobility within a modernizing society. But this was never going to dispel their primary identification as Estonians, Latvians and Lithuanians. And they simultaneously demanded greater recognition and primacy for their own uh, languages. And if we, if we turn now to policies of administrative Russification that were adopted in uh, the provinces of Estland, Livland and Courland, then I would say that these inadvertently boosted the fortunes of the Estonian, Latvian, um, Estonian and Latvian national movements insofar as they served to undermine the long-standing and entrenched power of the Baltic German estates. And by you know, institutional reform, the emerging Baltic national movements uh, were able to get their first foothold in municipal government at the start of the uh, 20th century. And this you know, fed uh, a demand for further reform. And so to some extent, uh, elements of the Baltic national movements were able to make common cause with um, Russifying policies insofar as they um, served to undermine German dominance. However, this was only insofar as it supported the goal of achieving national autonomy within the framework of a reformed and democratized Russian state. And it was this political agenda that was really in play by the start of the 20th century. As you mentioned already, in 1918, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia declared independence. And unlike most of other former imperial provinces, 
managed to preserve their sovereignty for the entire interval period. When we compare the map of the Baltic states in 1919 to that of the House of Romanov's Western provinces of Ubierni in 1914, there is an obvious discrepancy in the territories associated with these ethnic groups. What was the process of defining and negotiating these interstate borders? And what role did uh, the League of Nations play in this process? Well, given the situation that existed at the time, the, the Paris Peace Conference at the end of the First World War was really able to devote very little attention to the Baltic area. And this, I think, can be seen as another distinguishing feature of the region. Uh, the, the sovereignty of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania was first recognised on the basis of treaties signed with Soviet Russia um, after fledgling national armies had repelled invading Bolshevik forces during independence wars lasting from late 1918 to early 1920. And it was as, as a product of the, of the military victories in these wars that, for instance, the Latvian state was able to incorporate ethnic kin populations in Latgale, which had previously formed part of the Vitebsk uh, gubernia rather than the German-ruled Baltic provinces, historically speaking. Estonia also incorporated the southeastern territories uh, of Petchori, Petseri, um, and a strip of land to the east of the river Narva. Essentially, the borders were drawn where the ceasefire lines in the war um, were drawn. And these territories that were acquired by Estonia under the 1920 peace settlements were later detached um, from the uh, Estonian Republic and incorporated into the Russian one following the Soviet annexation of 1940. If we look at it in terms of, of border drawing, then the future Estonian-Latvian border was delineated already in 1917, following the February Revolution, when the new Russian provisional government acceded to one of the long-standing demands of the Estonian national movement. It, it abolished the last vestiges of Baltic German rule, and it divided the uh, Livland gubernia um, to create a new Estonian province that more or less corresponded with the boundaries of ethnic Estonian settlement. Later on, some arbitration by British military officials was, was required when drawing the final interstate border between Estonia and Latvia, and also between Latvia and Lithuania. However, by the standards of the wider region, uh, delineating these boundaries was relatively straightforward, I would say. You know, it was done along ethnographic lines. It was a very different matter when it came to drawing the border between uh, Lithuania and Poland, given the profound dispute between the two parties over the city of Vilnius and its surrounding region. And here, Lithuania's claim to Vilnius as its historic capital was contested by Pilsudski and other Polish leaders um, who harked back to the uh, former Lithuanian-Polish Commonwealth and aspired to unite ethnographic Lithuania politically with Poland within some kind of common state framework. By this time, though, this was an anathema to uh, the Lithuanian, to the leaders of the um, Lithuanian national movement who were committed to a fully sovereign Lithuanian nation state. 
And their claim to Vilnius was initially upheld by the League of Nations in 1920, um, as well as by the Soviet Union um, in the uh, peace treaty it signed with Lithuania in the same year, or the sorry, Soviet Russia, I should say. In October 1920, however, Polish troops under General Zeligowski uh, countered this decision by occupying Vilnius and part of the um, surrounding region, therefore challenging the, the Lithuanian claim. And there were concerted attempts at mediation through the League of Nations under the uh, Belgian Prime Minister Paul Hymans, but the two sides were too far um, apart from one another to reach any agreement. And so um, by 1923, the League Council recognised the Polish claim, I would say largely because Poland had you know, strong backing from Britain and France. It was seen as, you know, the most powerful state in the region and as a key, therefore a key element in, you know, containing any resurgence of German power or any threat from the um, Soviet Union. But this was a, you know, this was a very significant uh, dispute. It poisoned relations between Lithuania and Poland for the entirety of the interwar period. And this had disastrous consequences for the security, not only of Lithuania, but for the Baltic states collectively and also for the wider region. First and foremost, it ruled out any prospect of creating a so-called Baltic League or Baltic Entente that would have encompassed the three Baltic states, uh, Finland and Poland. And there were various discussions around this during the early 1920s, but they proved um, fruitless because you know it was impossible to uh, resolve this Lithuanian-Polish um, dispute or, or, or get um, beyond it. And I think the security situation was was further compounded in 1923 when Lithuania unilaterally enforced its claim on the port city of Memel, as it was known in German, or Kleipeda. In Lithuanian, this had been detached from uh, Germany at the end of the war and placed under a League mandate. L Lithuania had an ethnographically based claim on the region, and eventually the uh, League accepted Lithuania's claim to the territory under a convention that granted it wide-ranging autonomy within the Lithuanian uh, state. However, through this incorporation, Lithuania basically acquired a quite restive uh, German minority. And, you know, when as Hitler came to power in the 1930s, this minority became increasingly irredentist minded. And so by 1938, with the, with, the, with the security situation as it was, the Lithuanian government had no option but to accede to Hitler's demand for the region to be transferred to. Uh, Germany. As you mentioned, national cultural autonomy is your, uh, one of your key research interests. In our podcast series, we have already discussed the concept of non-territorial autonomy with Boris Kutzmanni, who runs an ERC-funded project on this topic at the University of Vienna. Given your specialism in the Baltic states, I cannot help but ask about, your in, about the intellectual transfer of this concept from Austria to the Baltics. Why do you think the idea of non-territorial autonomy became so popular between the wars and what were the peculiarities uh, of its application 
and compared to the Austro-Marxist principles on which it was originally founded. Well, given that, as I've said, the, the Baltic provinces, Estland, um, Livland and Courland form part of a wider German cultural space right up to 1917, the Austro-Marxist ideas that you've mentioned quickly came to the attention, not only of Baltic German circles, but also of prominent Estonian and Latvian advocates of national cultural autonomy, people such as Konstantin Petz um, in Estonia, and um, uh, Margus Skrienex uh, in, in Latvia. And the ideas of Renner and Bauer, of course, also um, transferred to the Baltic region via the medium of the Jewish Bund, which um, espoused uh, the, the idea. But it's also important to mention the homegrown variant of, of national cultural autonomy or non-territorial autonomy that was propounded by Shimon Dubnov, the uh, Jewish historian and founder of the Volkspartei. And Dubnov, he devised his scheme almost simultaneously, but completely independently of um, Renner and Bauer. And he was inspired first and foremost um, by the traditions of Jewish autonomy that had existed in the previous Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So before 1795, um, Jews had been constituted as a, as a distinct state, which had had its own central governing body, as well as its own network of local institutions that exercised not only religious, but administrative, judicial, educational, and also charitable um, functions. And the, the central council, uh, was able to represent community interests before the Polish diets and also before the monarchs. So if we look at um, NTA, I think this had particular appeal for the Baltic German and the Jewish minorities in uh, the new uh, states, not least because they were relatively small in size and they were territorially dispersed. So some territorially based form of autonomy would not really have, have, have suited their uh, requirements. But another factor, as, as I've already mentioned, uh, is the legacies of corporate organization that both could draw upon from the period of the former empires. And I think if you look at the context of 1918 to 1920, leaders from these minority communities were well placed to press their claims in a context where, as I said before, um, new Baltic governments had to quite quickly improvise their own approaches to state and nation building in the face of competing designs from Germany, from Soviet Russia, and from Poland. And so I think a readiness to support autonomy was fairly, you know, was on, was partly pragmatic, partly instrumental. It was a question of getting minority communities on board with the project of building an independent state. However, I think especially in Estonia and Latvia, it did reflect a genuine ideological commitment to federalist principles that had been devised in the pre-1918 period and which carried through the war and the revolutions uh, to inform the political life of the newly independent states. And this, I think, is seen in Estonia's famous 1925 law on national cultural autonomy, which was unique in Europe at the time and which was remarkably faithful 
to the principles of Renner and Bauer. It followed their ideas uh, very, very closely indeed. In Latvia, it has to be said, there was never any formal law on autonomy that was adopted despite repeated attempts from uh, German and Jewish leaders in particular. However, um, a law on schooling that had been adopted in 1919 provided for minority sections within the Ministry of Education. And until the 1930s, these um, autonomous minority sections enjoyed a degree of latitude, which I think many would say was even greater than that of the autonomous self-governments that existed in Estonia. So the, this principle of autonomy was present in Latvia, even if it didn't follow you know, the Renner and Bauer blueprint. A law on Jewish autonomy was also adopted in Lithuania in 1920. But I think the more nationalistic atmosphere that I've mentioned, you know, occasioned by the, the Vilnius dispute, first and foremost, left very little political space for a full and proper implementation of this law. And, and in, in effect, Jewish autonomy had ceased to have any real meaning even before you know, Lithuania ceased to be uh, a democracy and went down the road of authoritarianism in 1926. Some scholars maintain that the process of Sovietization in Western Ukraine and Belarus provided a reference point for the later occupation of the Baltic states. In 1939, newly annexed territories like Western Ukraine were to become parts of a specific national republic, Soviet Ukraine in this case, with the promotion of cadres from the identified titular nationalities. Ethnic Ukrainians came to occupy leading position and the development of the Ukrainian language and culture was prioritized. While in Soviet Ukraine, those affirmative actions, so, so to say, had been mostly discontinued in the early 1930s, those mechanisms seem to fit perfectly in the context of the newly annexed territories. Seeking ways to present the Soviet policies following annexation, annexation as beneficial to the core ethnic populations in Ukraine and Belarus contained an implicit promise of a similar attitude towards the Lithuanians, Latvians and Estonians, thus making their annexation easier. With the annexation of the Baltic states, the process of reincorporating the lands of the former Russian Empire under the Red Banner, which had begun in 1919, was completed. Hence, there was no more need to pursue further with those ostentatiously favorable ethnic policies. How much continuity do you think was there in Soviet expansionism? Do you think the annexation of the Baltic states was inevitable from the Soviet perspective? And perhaps given the ongoing Russia's war in Ukraine, do you think the region remains attractive for Russia's ruling elites? Well, first and foremost, I think when the Soviet Union forcibly annexed the Baltic states in June 1940, it violated the treaties that Lenin's government had signed just two decades previously treaties in which um, the Soviet government had renounced in perpetuity any claims on these um, territories. And here, for all the lip service that Lenin's government paid to issues of national self-determination, it had really no intrinsic interest in um, this uh, principle. And I think evidence would suggest that it never really 
recognised the legitimacy of Baltic independence. So the 1920 treaties, uh, they provided the Bolshevik regime with a breathing space with, in Lenin's words, you know, the opportunity to open an economic window on the West. But the common turn goal of exporting revolution had not gone away. And this is shown by the attempted communist putsch that occurred in Tallinn in Estonia in December 1924. By the 1930s, and you know, especially following Hitler's rise to power, it seems to me that Stalin's government had uh, become ready to use any means to secure an expanded um, territorial buffer on its western frontiers. And I think here, yes, the Sovietization of, of Western Ukraine and Belarus did provide a template for the Baltic after June 1940. But in this case, um, the USSR was seeking to incorporate what were already consolidated nation states, states in which the core ethnic population already had um, a dominant political um, position. And during the early period of Soviet rule, a clear priority, as I see it, was to destroy the structures of these uh, previously independent states. So eradication of the interwar political, military and economic elites through um, execution, through deportation um, during the first year of Sovietization was followed after the war by the collectivization of agriculture and the de deportation of tens of thousands of land-owning farmers who had constituted in many ways the backbone of the pre-1940 market economies that had sustained these independent um, countries. And again, if you look at the post-war era, I don't see much sign of an emphasis on affirmative action or coronizatia. I think the, the prime objective was really to harness the natural resources and the pre-existing industrial capacities of Estonia and Latvia and uh, develop them towards the reconstruction of the uh, northwest region of the USSR after the war. And given the paucity of locally available labour after the war in Estonia and Latvia, workers were imported en masse from neighbouring Russia and other Soviet republics to work in new industrial enterprises. And th this was significant because it signaled the start of a dramatic ethno-demographic shift in Estonia and Latvia during the five decades of Soviet rule, a period when the um, ethnically Estonian share of the local population fell from just under 90% before the war to 60% by 1989. And the ethnically Latvian share in Latvia from 75% to just over um, 50%. But again, one cannot you know, generalise here because in Lithuania, the pattern was different given the more agricultural character of the country, given also the particularly fierce resistance um, that was encountered from a post-war partisan movement, Lithuania was not slated for the rapid development of heavy industry during the post-war Stalinist period. Rather, industrialization began later. And at this point, you had in place um, a native Lithuanian and quite nationally minded uh, communist party leadership that was able to steer 
this process more towards light industry, towards a model that would be more responsive to local needs. And what was most important was that this industrialization could draw upon a locally available pool of surplus and ethnically Lithuanian labor from the uh, countryside. And if we, if we look at Lithuania, it shouldn't be forgotten that uh, after the Soviet Union participated in the dismemberment of Poland in September 1939, um, it incorporated Vilnius and its surrounding region into the newly created Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic. And after the war, with the murder of the city's large pre-war Jewish population during the Holocaust and the post-war relocation of many um, Polish residents to, to Poland, the, the scene was set for finally for a Lithuanianization of the of the city of Vilnius. However, it was done under Soviet auspices. So we can't talk about a uniform pattern of Russification, a constant, you know, a a conscious policy um, being pursued in that regard. And similarly, with uh, the removal of the pre-war German population from Klaipeda, Memel, um, this region was finally integrated into a republic whose population remained 80% Lithuanian by ethnicity at the end of the Soviet period. And I, I, I noticed you, you added a question on at the end there, um, if I may, I could, we can perhaps come back to that at the at the end. Thanks. Thank you. Yes. Um, so turning to more con contemporary affairs, I'm interested in your thoughts about the issue of non-citizens in both, both Latvia and Estonia. A legal term used to define individuals who, while not recognized as citizens of these states, have the right to a non-citizen travel document, so-called alliance passport, as well as other specific rights. Would you equal their uh, status to that of statelessness? And uh, since most of those aliens are ethnic Russians, can we speak of some sort of discrimination on ethnic grounds here? At the same time, the Baltic example is a frequent reference in debates concerning this, uh, the status of Ukraine's Russian minority. What do you think other former Soviet republics can learn from the Baltic treatment of its minorities? At the same time, in what ways decisions made about minority citizenship in the 1990s and early 2000s continue to influence the political sphere in the Baltic states today? Thank you. Uh, well, if you, if you look at the policies that were adopted by Latvia and Estonia after 1991, they were justified by reference to the legal continuity of pre-war independence, the fact that the Soviet takeover had been internationally condemned at the time as an illegal occupation and annexation, and the fact that the, the you know, de jure recognition of Soviet sovereignty had never been granted by the international community, even if the international community, you know, had no option but to accept the factual incorporation of the three countries. And it was this principle you know, I mentioned the Baltic chain uh, the, of 1989. It was this principle of legal continuity that became the cornerstone of the late 1980s national movements. And these movements spoke about the de facto restoration of independence. In legal terms, it wasn't a case of the Baltic states leaving the USSR, 
since they had never actually joined it in the first place. Instead, they framed it as a case of the USSR leaving them, um, of uh, the Soviet government ending its military occupation and thus enabling the de facto restoration of independent states that de jure had never ceased to exist. After 1918, their, their legal existence was unbroken. And so after 1991, Estonia and Latvia applied this philosophy of restorationism, you might call it, to the sphere of citizenship. And it was held that only citizens of the pre-war 19, sorry, the pre-1940 republics and their descendants had an automatic right to citizenship of the restored Estonian and Latvian states. By extension, the large populations of mainly Russian-speaking Soviet citizens who'd settled in Estonia and Latvia after the war and their descendants who had you know, been born and brought up there could not claim um, citizenship automatically. Rather, they could only acquire it through a naturalization process based on residence requirements and also demonstrating a working knowledge of the Estonian and Latvian languages, which had now been re-established as the sole official languages of the countries concerned. And it's interesting, your, your question about statelessness, statelessness, sorry, because in legal terms, Estonia and Latvia disputed this, um, the use of this term with uh, regard to those who didn't get full citizenship after 1991. And the argument went that as former Soviet citizens, they had a legal entitlement to acquire citizenship of Russia, which had become the legal successor to the USSR in international relations. And indeed, if you look at the case of Estonia, around 100,000 people took passports of the Russian Federation in the mid-1990s. And the reason they did it was primarily because at the time this was the only way of acquiring a valid identity document in which one could get, you know, one's residence permit and, and you know, which one could use to um, travel. Those who did not uh, were officially deemed to be persons of undefined citizenship, and they, as you point out, have continued to reside on the basis of the so-called grey or aliens um, passports. And I think. You know this this status is resented. Um, however, it's it's suggested that for some people this has actually been an active choice because the grey passport can confer certain advantages. For example, it enables uh, free movement within the Schengen area after the EU entry, and it also allows visa-free travel to Russia. And if you hold a, a Russian passport or an Estonian or Latvian passport, that flexibility isn't available. So for some, I think it's been um, an active choice. What it, it, it does give, you know, full residence rights. It also, in Estonia at least, it allows for um, participation in local elections. The one thing it does not enable is um, full participation in parliamentary elections obviously full citizenship is required and there is i mean you know that there was undeniably an ethno-political logic that lay behind the policies that were introduced at the start of the 1990s the uh, the aim 
of the Estonian Latvian national movements was firstly to restore, as I said, unitary nation states of the kind that had existed before 1940. However, the demo, you know, the ethno-demographic profile of these countries in terms of their residence, residence was obviously fundamentally changed compared to before 1940. The second prime goal was to secure a rapid and complete economic, political, economic and political break with Russia and the other former Soviet republics and pursue um, integration with Western international organizations. And in this respect, the, you know, the politically compelling argument, I suppose, was that if the sizable Russian-speaking populations that had been established during the Soviet era had been allowed to acquire citizenship without any prior preconditions, this would have given them the political weight to argue for continued close association with Russia um, and the former Soviet space, and also to press for continued use of the Russian language to the detriment of um, Estonian and Latvian. And of course, one of the drivers of the late Soviet national movement had been you know, what was perceived as a growing threat of longer term Russification, given the increasing numbers of Russian speakers and the uh, increasing prevalence of the Russian language in everyday life. And this, of course, this ethno-political logic that I've mentioned was not present to the same degree in Lithuania, because here, 80% of the population was still ethnically Lithuanian, um, and therefore political control by the core nationality was more um, assured. And for this reason, citizenship of the restored Lithuanian state was extended to um, all permanent residents um, already in 1989, not just to those who could claim um, descent from the pre-war um, period. And so in terms of how these policies have been justified in the eyes of the West, in terms of international opinion, then the analogy that um, Estonia and Latvia would draw um, is with the policies that are applied to new immigrants in Western societies. They, they equate those who came after 1940 as immigrants, and they argue that they should be required to integrate um, into independent states on the basis of terms that are set by the existing legitimate um, citizen body. That is the analogy that's drawn. Of course, the context is fundamentally um, different. But I think it's important to note that large numbers of non-citizens did undergo naturalization on the terms set. Um, during the late 1990s and 2000s, they became full citizens of Estonia and Latvia with full political rights. And, uh, you know, a major impetus to this was given by um, accession to the European Union, um, during which the uh, EU required both states to, to liberalise their uh, requirements and to, 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 you know, to do their best to uh, expedite the naturalisation of remaining non-citizens. And I think the most important development during the EU uh, accession process was that um, now children who are born to non-citizen parents in either country can acquire citizenship without conditions. So 
in the longer term, generationally, access to citizenship is going to become a moot um, point. Now, just just to finish off on this topic, and, and really, I think you know there will be a case for devoting an entire podcast to this, to the contemporary situation, given the amount of uh, literature that exists around it. But I mean, I would say that in in socio-political terms, the policies of the 1990s have caused resentment, you know, uh, quite widespread resentment um, among Russian speakers in Estonia and Latvia. However, sociological research suggests that this should not be seen as the defining basis for identity within um, a population that is highly diverse in character. And again, you see this kind of essentialist labeling of the Russian-speaking population in Estonia and Latvia, which belies a far more complex um, reality. And I think, importantly, it has not translated into widespread political identification with Russia, despite you know the, the Russian Federation ever since the 1990s having claimed to speak in the name of its compatriots living abroad and, and you know, having consistently in, invoked this issue of non-citizens. Um, I think it's understood that this has really not been motivated by any intrinsic concern for the people concerned. It's more been used as a lever for achieving geopolitical uh, objectives. And I mean, I think Baltic Russians were identified and identified themselves um, as a separate identity group already in the Soviet period. And if there is an overarching basis for a Baltic Russian identity, it's rooted in a quite strong territorial attachment to Estonia and Latvia, even if you know the 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 russian speaker's vision of the independent states would not conform to you know necessarily to those of the majority estonian and latvian populations and and to go back to your question that you tagged on um you know i remember back in 2014 being bombarded by questions from journalists, you know, is Narva next? Is Estonia next? Is 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 Latvia next? And I know colleagues in both countries were, you know, routinely approached with this question. And I think no, you cannot, you know, the contexts are different. And to some extent, I think, you know, if you were going to see uh, Russian moves against the Baltic states, these would occur, you know, regardless of um the uh treatment of local russian minorities regardless of their own concerns on the matter and i mean again you know the main contextual difference is of course membership of nato you know the question would would the kremlin try to engineer something in one of these countries and run the risk of escalating you know, things to a conflict with NATO. I mean, obviously, we have entered, you know, very different uncharted territory over the last two months. Um, and, but, you know, I think the fundamentally, the situation in the Baltic states has not really changed dramatically as a basis of that would be my final word. So thanks. 
thank you. And um, just finally, uh, where can people go to learn more about this topic? What sources would you recommend? Are we? Uh, how are we for time? Are we okay? Uh, well, just a few references to know. You know okay, what, what, okay. what else to read. Apart yeah, from I mean, it would be uh, just a few honourable mentions, really, because as I said, particularly on the contemporary situation, the literature is um, enormous. I mean. If we're talking about English language sources, first of all, I'd point to some excellent general histories that have been written in the past decade. Andres Kazakamp's uh, History of the Baltic States with Paul Grave, Andres Plakan's Concise History of the Baltic States, published with Cambridge University Press. Uh, a very fresh publication by Central European University Press um, has just come out and co-edited by my Glasgow colleague Michael Loder, Matthew Cott in Uppsala and uh, Siobhan Hearn at Durham called Defining Latvia and that touches upon many of the themes we've talked about um, today and previously Matthew Cott and I worked on the compendium Latvia a work in progress published in 2017 that also you know addresses many of these issues but if we turn to the, the history of uh, minorities uh, more specifically, I would, you know, direct people to the work of my former colleagues at Bradford, John Hyden, um, his biography of the interwar Latvian-German politician, Paul Schiemann, is in many ways a tour de force, which would, you know, touch upon much broader issues related to um, minorities in, in interwar Europe. Similarly, Martin Housden, um, a, a former colleague at Bradford who published uh, a biography of Eval de Mender, an Estonian-German uh, interwar minority activist. I can't fail to mention the excellent work that's being done by Boris Kuzmani's project in Vienna. You know, I, I very much enjoyed the podcast and there you have Marina Germane. Timo Arva, who are both doing very fresh and interesting work on the interwar um, period. And finally, on contemporary politics, the, the list is too long really to go into, um, but I would mention recent work done by my colleague at Glasgow, Amon Cheskin. I think this has become an essential point of reference, particularly if you're looking at the complex identity of, of Baltic Russian populations that I spoke about. And there's a, a book which I think is just about to appear, which is very intriguing by Vasilis Petsinis in, in Tartu, which is actually a comparative study of ethno-political ethno situations in the, Baltic, in the Baltic states and in Southeast Europe. And I think that will be particularly illuminating and, and finally, uh, one, one book that I keep going back to is a book called Strategic Frames by Jenny Schultzer, published in 2018. And this really, I think, you know, uh, captures the complex dynamics that govern the relationship between the Baltic states, their Russian minorities, Russia as a kin state, but also then with the wider international community, the EU and other international organizations as i say I've, I've missed out lots of really good work but uh, it's huge you should have another podcast thanks thank you so much david for taking the time to talk to us today pleasure thank you thank you so much for the invitation once again um, and for the series it's been wonderful to listen to thank you